welcome to Writer's Voices once again with Monica and Caroline. I am your host, Monica Hadley, and it'll be just me today. Although I really wish I'd had time to have Caroline, who's my mother, read this book because she would have loved it. But we didn't we didn't have enough time for us to to both get to read it for today. So I will give it to her later. And the book I'm talking about is Recipe for a Good Life. And our guest is Leslie Crew, And she is a Canadian author, the Globe and Mail bestselling author of 13 novels, including Nosy Parker, which was named one of Indigo's top 100 books of 2022, The Spoon Stealer, long listed for Canada Reads 2022, Behold in Mary, Mary, Amazing Grace, Kin, and Relative Happiness, which was adapted into an award-winning feature film. She's also published two collections of essays, Are You Kidding Me? and I Kid You Not, which I have a feeling are rather humorous. <laughs> and Leslie lives in Homeville, Nova Scotia, and her website is lesliecrew.com, and that's crew with an E at the end. And Leslie with a Y. So just Google uh, Recipe for Good Life and you'll be able to spell her name properly. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Leslie. Oh, thank you so much. It's so exciting to be here. How did you get started as a, at writing novels? Well, I um, just something happened to me. I'd always, I'd always um, loved books and took English in university and uh, so you know, when I was in the library before I could read. So books were always important. Words are important. Um, but basically, I moved to Cape Breton Island uh, from Montreal, and I started writing letters home. And uh, so, and my mother used to say, "Leslie, you sound just like Irma Bombeck." Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I just would write about you know everyday family things and the kids and the animals and the whole nine yards and. She kept those letters, um, and I had no intention of ever writing uh, a novel or writing to be published. I mean, that wasn't in my radar at all, um, but almost 40 years ago, we lost a little boy uh, to sudden infant death, and um, it was very difficult. It was such oh, a difficult time. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, and then we had, we had a little boy, and then Joshua, and then our little girl, and then it just kind of went underneath. You have to keep living. You have to keep going. And um, But I never really resolved, um, you know, what had happened. And then fast forward, you know, 20-odd years later, um, my mother died suddenly. And that kind of brought everything back with the sudden death. Uh, you know, SIDS is a, you know, the first symptom is death. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, so, uh Anyway, then she died, and I was really having a difficult time. I remember driving in the car with my daughter, and we were laughing, but I was crying. I looked in the mirror, and I was crying, and I thought, I, I'm in trouble. So I went, and I got help, and finally found out, I guess, I had been suffering from PTSD for years, and it ex explained everything, mm. um, why I was so hyper-vigilant. Um, our little girl uh, didn't want her to go outside, didn't want her to do anything. Thank God she was as independent as she was because I would have smothered her. And uh, anyway, so I got really tired of looking at Josh's name carved in granite for thousands of days. And I thought, I need him to come live for me again. So I wrote a story and he lives in the book. And that was the first novel, Relative Happiness. It's not all about that. It's actually quite funny book. 
But everything I wanted to say about losing a child is in that book. And the sister loses a little baby, not not the main character because mm. I couldn't live again. But um, that's what I did. I just spent two months, cried through the whole thing. It was just something I needed to do for myself, and then I put it away. I like I say, I didn't plan on sharing it with anybody, and um, and then I kind of enjoyed the process. I mean, our our youngest had was off to university, and I was sort of a empty nester and I thought well I kind of like that so I wrote another one and um, then somebody said well why don't you send them off and I said no 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 anyway they um, finally convinced me so I sent something off and they wanted both so there you go <laughs> okay that doesn't happen every day no no and people hate <laughs> that <laughs> I bet I bet so so they both I was, got published like one right after the other? Yeah, yeah. There were, one came out in 2015, the next one came out in 2016, and I have written. I've just finished my 16th um, book uh, in 20 years. So that's what I, I kind of say this is what I do instead of knit. No, okay, I, it's your 16th book in 20 years, but you've published 13 of them in eight years, if the first one came out in 2015? This is 2023, right? Yeah. So that's, I don't know. That's eight years. <laughs> that's pretty impressive. <laughs> I'm sorry, I missed that. Can you say that again? No, I, okay. So the first one was published when I was 50. Um, so I, I kind of like to say that. So there's young writers that always think they don't have the novel done by 30. They're, they're finished. That's nonsense. Uh, you need to live a little first before you can start putting some words down and, and know know a little bit, I think. And uh, so, yeah, it was OK. So I think I wrote it in 2003 is when I wrote it. And then it was okay. published in five. And anyway. Oh, so, yeah. Oh, it was published in 2005, not 2015. OK, gotcha. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, that's an amazing story. and. Have you run out of ideas or do they just keep flowing? I think, um, and I only started to realize this in the last few years, I think all of my books are kind of long-winded diaries. Um, since it it helped me so much to write, write the first one. And then anytime, since I seem to have the ability to bring back the people that I love, I tend to put them in my books. Um, one of Latest books, Nosey Parker, was from my dad, and he was a writer, but uh, he never knew I became a writer. Oh. He, he had early Alzheimer's, and I just thought, I'm going to keep writing for him because, uh, you know, Alzheimer's took his brain and his voice and then his lovely handwriting, and I'll just keep writing until I, you know, have to stop. I mean, why not? And so he lives in that book. I have other books, one book called Kin. Everything that ever happened to my family is in that book. I just wove a fictional story around the events. Um, so I seem to, I mine my family's history a lot. <laughs> and so you've still got plenty left to mine. Yes. I <laughs> now, a recipe for a good life is set in 1955. And are all of your books set in the past or are some of them contemporary? Oh, no, a lot of them are contemporary. Um, the last few have been sort of, you know, sort of historical. Uh, I think it's because I'm, 
I'm, I'm enjoying it. Sometimes the world is pretty scary right now. And I think I enjoy going back to a time that seemed a little simpler. Maybe it wasn't, but it seemed like it was. Um, stories of my grandmother and, and in this book with the party line, I mean, I remember that as a little girl. Um, well, I can beat you there. I remember that as a young adult. I did. We did not have a party line when I was a kid. We lived, you know, I grew up in small towns, but still established towns. And then as a very uh, young mother, I moved out into the middle of nowhere, Iowa, and we were on a party line. And I had never, I had no experience with that. And we did have a nosy neighbor who listened in. And we did. I think every party line probably does. <laughs> I think that's universal. I don't think that it happens everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And we did. I don't remember. I think my my ring was maybe three short was my ring. But it was, this is a long time ago, like, you know, 45 years ago. So it's, uh, but um but we did not have the crank phones like you have in this book. They were regular dial phones. We had a regular, you know, phone number that you dialed, but um, but it still rang on the party line. And I don't know when. So that would have been in the late 70s, 1970s. So I don't know when that went away. Do you? Well, actually, we were on it at our cottage and um, we were on a party line, too, with just the regular phones. And that I to had that until the late 80s and then the telephone company came in and took it out um we didn't have the crank phone either but yeah. i mean we did at my grandmother's house and that's mm-hmm. when early 60s but i loved that phone <laughs> now at the beginning of of this book um you write you have a little introduction to your friends and neighbors <laughs> that i got a kick out of um <laughs> explaining that yes you know that you uh changed some things around on South Head Road that it isn't exactly it isn't exactly the way it is. <laughs> it wasn't complicated to try to figure out that the vistas, the beautiful views, you would have to go in further. Uh, I sort of in the book, I put it that you can kind of see it from the road just because it was easier for me to uh, write the story. But we all know that you really have to go into the woods um, to walk through to get to those scenes. Now, is this set exact, like where you live now? Is this where you? Yes, I live in Homeville. I imagine a better name. Homeville is just a little place, and South Head Road is a part of it. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Leslie Crew, author of Recipe for a Good Life. And we are talking about Cape Breton. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, yes, Cape Breton. It's close to Newfoundland, if you know where that is. <laughs> I don't know. Do you know? Do you know the show "Come From Away"? All of the um, the the planes that were diverted during nine eleven. Oh, right. They all landed in Newfoundland. Yes. yes. So we're up in that part of the world. Okay. Yeah. So what what drew you there from Montreal? Well, my mother um, was born in Cape Breton, and she would bring. She was a kindergarten teacher, so she would take us down to Cape Breton every summer for two months to visit relatives. And I knew I was going to live there. I just loved it. I mean, for a city kid to be on the beach for two months, no shoes on, you know, <laughs> I thought it was marvelous. <laughs> so, and, funnily enough, I met. I um, go ahead. Sorry. 
It's not too cold to swim? No. Well, it gets cold. <laughs> yeah, it's cold. But uh, it's not cold in the summer. And the and the weather keeps changing now, um, unfortunately. So sometimes it's warmer than it should be, um, but which is kind of nice in one sense. But not when you know the havoc that's being wreaked on, on the – we had a terrible, terrible hurricane uh, just last year. Uh, came through our community and it's, it looks still looks pretty bad. So, but so there's good things and bad things. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that uh, in this in your book there's this yes. women's institute. They uh, and the, right and that is an organization. Um, it's in the in the England too, um, not just Canada and some rural communities in Canada. Um, it's basically rural women that got together to. Um, sort of make their voices heard, um, looking after their community, their families, and uh, raising money for this, that, and the other thing. And in our little community, it's been going on for 70 years, and uh, they just do wonderful things. And I wanted them celebrated. As somebody who has grew up with some of these women, I wanted them celebrated for their own sakes. I mean, when I went looked through their the minute books, they all signed their names by their husbands' names because this. I mean, they started in the 50s, and even in the 70s, they were putting like Mrs. William McDonald instead of you know Abby McDonald. So. I made sure that in 1955, I've got those notes, and I put all the women that were there, um, I put them in the book, and all of their families were so excited. (laughs) I had had 225 people show up for the launch in our little community. Uh, And, you know, when we're not very big, but everybody was excited to have their uh, relative names in that book, um, just as a tribute to them, because rural women can do some amazing things. And sometimes we just don't always get the credit we deserve. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. That is true. I bet there's a lot of stories that haven't been told. Haven't been told. Well, this is it. Okay. <laughs> and yeah. Actually, and the thing is, you know, you, you live in the middle of nowhere, but you have no idea what goes on. <laughs> it's uh, I, I love the where I love where I live. I think uh, uh, the stories that I am able to get from people is just is endless. <laughs> so that's what yeah. we were talking about um, a few minutes ago. Was if you run out of ideas, and you were saying, you know, you you mine your family, but you also mine your community. Mm-hmm. No, well, I mean, that's that's where you do get your ideas, right? You, you know, where you live, who you interact, interact with, who your family is. I mean, all those stories are important, and I think that's why pe- people should be writing them down. Even for the world that my grandmother and, and mother grew up in are gone. So it's nice to be able to write these stories so that my children and grandchildren will know what happened. Um, it's just I'm, I'm glad I'm able to do it. I'm glad you are too. So you um are this story is at heart kind of a romance although it's also a you know learning who you are yourself. Are all yes. your books do all your books have that romantic element or are some of them more detective stories because in the book the main character is a writer who writes detective stories. So I'm kind of guessing that maybe you've written some detective stories. No, never. <laughs> the only, the no, no. I, I, I wouldn't be able to do that. I don't think I have that oh, much okay. imagination. I, <laughs> m- 
my stories are basically about family and friendships and um and what makes the world go around? I mean, some of my books have romance in them, just, you know, like a, a relationship kind of thing. Um, but I wouldn't call them, like, they're certainly not like romance kind of novels or anything like that. Some of them um, don't have romance at all. It's just uh, basically, you know, a woman growing up in some for some circumstances and trying to, you know, get through her life kind of thing. Um so they're all different and they all take place at different um, communities. And some of them take, most of them take place in the Maritimes, I guess. But then I do have some in Montreal, some in Toronto. Um, I, but I really don't think in this day and age of like Netflix, when you, <laughs> when you can access the whole world, we all know kind of what the whole world looks like at this point, because it's, we're so small now, thanks to social media and everything else. But I find that our hearts are the same doesn't matter what country you live in um you know when you're talking about family and friends and children um we all have the same feelings and we all go through the same things so i don't think it's a problem somebody said well will the people in the midwest of the states or whatever get you know would they be able to understand your books i said well i'm assuming they have dysfunctional families too (laughs) So uh, the same way we do. <laughs> yes, yes, I think so. Yeah. My mother always likes to, um, she, one of her favorite quotes, which um, maybe I should save it for the end, but um, she always says, there's no family that can hang a sign over the door. We have no trouble here. <laughs> <laughs> You are right on that score. <laughs> and again, that's and that's universal. And that's when readers read these books, they they recognize themselves and they recognize their families and they like being, you know, knowing that other families are exactly the way yours are. Uh, you know, we all deal with the same kind of issues. I just happen to be able to write them down and other people, maybe people can't write them down, but they sure do recognize it when they read it. Oh, absolutely. And that's why I have readers from everywhere they contact me constantly, you know, just saying, oh, my gosh, that's just like us. And, well, you know, this is amazing. I never anticipated all this, um, the amount of the readers I have and, and how they long to get in touch with me. And they think they know me when they meet me. But I guess they do because I'm basically in all my books. Um, <laughs> but it's <laughs> – anyway, so, yeah, it's just been a great, great little um, – so so who are you in this book? Well, I'm <laughs> I'm a kitty in as far as the writer. Mm-hmm. Um the way she writes is the way is the way I write. Everything it only takes me a couple of months to write a book and it's usually 12-hour days kind of thing. It's not so much now, but um now it'll be 8-hour days, but that's the way I write a book and it's a very uncomfortable way of doing it, but that's the way it seems to come to me. So, and now that I'm a grandmother, that schedule is all off course. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's who I am. And then also the part of me is Bertha. Um, Bertha, I, she was the first character. She's the one who has 10 grand, 10 children and 30 grandchildren. And I'm just new at being a grandmother for the last couple of years. And it's just, it's just been so wonderful. I just love it. And so I thought of Bertha. I imagine having 30 grandchildren. So I thought her up. That That <laughs> so is. That's what I do. You know, my um, my former mother-in-law reminds me of Bertha. And she also, you know, lived in oh, a yeah. very remote area. And she had, I think it, I think it ended up 
23 grandchildren maybe it was more I don't know oh wow yeah and so when my kids were little we lived not far from them and they could always go to grandma's they could always go to grandma's and, yeah. and you know, um, go play out in. Now there wasn't really um, a Wallace, but uh, well, there well there was for a little while. Although, it, sorry, there was some uh, feedback there. Um, there was one of my ex-husband's his younger sister when she was still at home. She was like Wallace. Mm. all the kids yeah. would hang around her and she she spent so much time with all of her nieces and nephews so i i did yeah. recognize that too that's so wonderful and bertha's such yeah. a good cook <laughs> well you see that's the other thing in K- i live in cape breton the cape breton is all about food um, you don't go anywhere. You don't do anything without, you know, you have somebody over. There's always a lot of food, uh, tea. Um, of course, I know this is in every community. You know, you bring food over if something happens, if there's a tragedy, a death, or whatever. But it's, um, you feed people. And that was her language of love, was feeding people. Uh, and especially her neighbor, Ethel, who nobody really liked. But, you know, she felt compassion for her. And... Um, so that's what she did. She fed her and her sister. Um, I love people like that. You know, I have to admit, mm-hmm. at first I was worried the sister didn't actually exist. Ethel's sister. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I kind of wanted you to think that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dear old Ethel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. people get people people get annoyed at characters like that, but I always try to look at for the good in people and uh, and there's a reason why she she was lonely and this is why she listens in on party lines yeah um, you yeah. know she piggybacks her life on other people and Bertha knows that it doesn't it doesn't really matter I mean other people get annoyed at her but like Bertha said what difference does it make if she listens in and she says something you know she gets annoyed at her but she not to the point where she refuses to talk to her like some of the neighbors right you, you need to be charitable yeah right. So yeah. Is that. <laughs> so you say when you're writing, you you sit down and write really, really fast. Then yeah. do you put it aside for a little bit before you come back to it? Or do you I'm assuming you're not editing as you write. Um. Sometimes I do. Uh, no, I'm mostly just writing, and then I send it off to my editor, and she sends it back. And, um, yeah, we just go back and forth like that a few times, and then that's it. I just mail it off, you know, I email it off, and there's the book. So I'm I'm in a very lucky position, <laughs> you know, after all this time. I have the same editor who I adore. She's like a daughter to me. Um, nobody else reads the books. I never let anybody read my books until they're published. Um, and even then, my family sometimes don't read it. <laughs> really? <laughs> they're busy really? with their own. Oh, yeah. They're, I, don't want their, I don't want their opinion because your family's going to tell you it's wonderful. Well, I don't need that. I need somebody to tell me, you know, where it's going wrong, what I need to do. And, uh, you know, that's helpful. Um, and then they can read it when it's over. Yeah, but so like did, everybody else, are you are you saying that you actually send the first draft to your editor? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You do yeah. realize how uncommon so, that is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. I only I only just found this out because this latest book that I'm, is coming out <laughs> next year called uh, – it's called Death and Other Inconveniences, <laughs> which is it's going to be a com- it's going to be a comedy. Obviously, uh, you don't take it seriously, but um, I really I was writing it, and then I was about thirty thousand words in, and I thought, wow, I've just killed off the only character I liked, ah! so I had to put that aside. So that- <laughs> <laughs> so that was draft one. Then I had to start again, and I needed I needed more of a family. So I created the whole family, but then I started getting into everybody's head. And when I sent it off, I tried to write it through the summer, and I was in a rush. And I sent it to my editor again, and she said, okay, now this is kind of, there's just we're sort of going all over the place here. And she sent me back like three pages of, you know, different edits. I said, what's this? <laughs> And she said, Leslie, this is what I sent to everybody. You know, like, don't panic. Um, but I did panic. And uh, so I started it all again. So the third, so I, okay, so the, that's the most I've done is three drafts. So I sent her off the third draft and she said, finally, this is it. You're okay. So that was good news. Okay. So, so you finally wrote a book that you were like other writers and didn't get it perfect the first time. <laughs> Oh, how disappointing! Everything (laughs) I've done everything the wrong way, so I'm not a great person to to ask, you know, talk to about, you know, how do you how do you get published? How do you write? I've done everything the wrong way, but it seems to have worked out. So I'll just keep doing what I do. Yeah, it certainly does seem to have worked out. How did you find, you know, when you said you you sent those first two books that you wrote? Did you Mm -hmm. send them to an agent first or did you go direct to publishers? No, I've never had an agent. I just sent it to the little, our local uh, Halifax, Nimbus Publishing in Halifax is sort of the largest publishing house east of Montreal kind of thing. And, but they were starting, they were mostly nonfiction and always about maritime stories. Uh, They were trying to start a new fiction imprint. So I think it was just good timing that I came along. They were looking for an author with two books, which I didn't, I didn't realize. And so I gave, you know, so they, it crossed their desk. They got back to me and said, could you meet us in Halifax? And I didn't know anything about publishing. I didn't know. I thought, why do I have to go to Halifax? I mean, it's a five hour drive. Anyway, so I went and they said, we'd like to publish both your books. And I said, oh, no, thank you. (laughs) I left. (laughs) And it's only because I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what they wanted. They came back a couple of months later and said, look, you know, we really like to publish your books. And my husband said, for heaven's sake, just give it to them. What could happen? You know, three people buy the book and then it's over. So this is what happened. <laughs> so, <I'm... laughs> oh, my goodness. So they pursued uh-huh. you, basically. Yeah. 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 And That's you've been with them ever since. Yeah. And they must mm-hmm. be pretty yep. thrilled about that. <laughs> well, yes, I think they. I think they are, especially since I seem to be so prolific, and I sort of give them one a year. 
they don't ask me for it. It's just if I have one, I'll throw, you know, I'll throw it at them, and you know, they'll they publish it. So I'm in a very enviable position. I completely understand <laughs> that, and I know that there are people that hate me, <laughs> you know, because this isn't the usual way of going about it. Um, but I never did want it. It didn't want this to be a career. I I don't want this to be a career. This is just something I love to do, and so I do it. And the day I decide I don't want to do it, I won't do it. Um, you know, so I don't put any pressure on myself. Obviously, now I know I have a, an incredible audience. So writing a book is a little different now for me because I'm aware that I have all these people waiting. And But I try not to think about that and, and try to just write the stories that I know how to write um, because I'm not reinventing the wheel. These are not, you know, great. This is not great literature. You can read my books in two days. Um, they're just easy stories and people seem to like them just to get out of their own routine, to spend a little time with people who are great characters, um, some horrible, some great. I mean, I have people I can cry. You can cry and laugh in my books because that to me is life. You know, you're crying in the morning, you're laughing in the afternoon. That is not a problem for me. And I do know how to make people cry because I have had a lot of loss. And I know what that feels like. And people recognize that when they read what I put down. But I'm also, I love being funny. I love being funny because that's what the only thing that gets us through life is, is the, are the funny moments and the, you know, being together. And I just love that. And I love thinking back on my grandmother hanging out clothes, you know, and wearing an apron and just all those lovely memories that, uh, you know, we're both, everybody is, if, if they're fortunate enough to have them, they should, you know, be able to keep them and remember them. Oh. Yeah. Why don't you read a little bit from recipes or recipe for a good life? Recipe. Yes. Recipe for a good life, okay. Leslie. Okay. I'll start. I'll just start with the first couple of pages just to give you an idea. This takes place in 1955 in Montreal. Gaynor Ledbetter was fed up to the back teeth, so she asked her secretary to call her hairstylist near the Windsor Hotel downtown to see if she could squeeze her in. It's not like the woman had to do anything complicated. She scrubbed Gaynor's hair within an inch of its life, fastened gray metal rollers in the thinning strands, threw her under the dryer, and then teased it into a monstrous beehive before using enough hairspray to keep it as hard as a rock for a week. Simple. Her secretary, Dolores, who was new which was part of the problem. Oh, which was new, which was part of the problem. Gaynor waited for two minutes, and when nothing happened, like her phone ringing, a knock at the door, someone popping their head in, she wearily got out of her chair, a cigarette firmly planted between her lips, and jerked her office door open. There was Dolores, looking panicked at her desk. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, Mrs. Bedwetter, but better let her. Oh, spit it out. I can't find the number. Oh, kill me now. She slammed the door shut and called her hair salon herself. This is Gaynor Ledbetter. I have a standing appointment with Mitzi every Tuesday at noon, and I wondered if she could take me right this very minute. Yes, I'll hold. She blew smoke rings up towards the ceiling and realized that the tiles above her desk were the color of tobacco. Easy solution. Stop looking at the ceiling. A voice came back on the line. I see. Well, tell Mitzi I'm very disappointed, seeing as how I'm a very generous tipper and have sent many new clients her way what i'll hold <laughs> a voice came back on the line brilliant tell her i'll see her in 20 minutes 
Gaynor grabbed her sizable alligator purse, threw her smokes and lighter into its depths, and shut it with a satisfying click. Then she grabbed her sweater and scarf off the coat rack and opened the door. Dolores was at her desk, looking flushed and teary. For God's sake, whatever you do, don't let anyone know where I am. Do you understand? What if it's your husband? Well, use your noodle. Obviously, you can tell him. I'm talking about my needy and pathetic writers who demand constant hand-holding. Become an editor, they said. You love books, they said. (laughs) I do love books. I just hate the people who write them. (laughs) An hour later, Gaynor was happily lying on a beach in Maui, the hot sun baking the back of her neck. The roar of the ocean filled her ears as she drifted off. A lovely calm overtook her frayed nerves. This was just the ticket. And then some kind of hermit crab kept pinching her shoulder. Her eyes flew open and she sat up, hitting her forehead on the front of the hairdryer with a thwack. Ow! Gaynor pulled up the dryer and gave the young woman in front of her a look. Kitty, is it asking too much to have some peace? How did you know I was here? Well, I bullied your new secretary into spilling the beans. I think she's quit. Last I saw her, she was running down the stairs sobbing. What do you do to these poor souls? Can't this wait? I'm afraid not, seeing as how I'm about to have a breakdown and may never write again. Now, this is why Gaynor hated writers. They always said they'd never write again, and they always <laughs> did. Gaynor heard this particular song and dance seven times before, but Kitty did look especially agitated, and she was Gaynor's number one client. So as inconvenient as it was, she'd have to gird her loins. Fine, go grab a cup of coffee, and we'll walk back to the office together when I'm finished here. May I bum a smoke? Gaynor pointed at the purse at her feet. Why do you never buy your own cigarettes? You always have them. Writers. There you go. And that's how we get started. And it's interesting, you you mentioned that uh, you're really, really close with your editor. And Kitty Kitty and her editor become very close in this book, too. (laughs) And I really, I really, yeah, I really like Gaynor. As a character. Thank you. Yes, so do I. <laughs> and Simon, yeah, no, too. I, I love her. And <laughs> yes, Simon says, Simon says, go to Cape Breton. <laughs> so that's what she did. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So is there, so um, when she goes to Cape Breton and she goes mm-hmm. to this, you know, this uh, rental house, was there a particular house that you had in mind when you were writing that, describing that? Not, well, it's sort of composite of some of the places that you can find here. When she thinks she's going to Cape Breton, they all think they're sending her somewhere to like the Celtic Lodge, which is a beautiful uh, lodge in, in our, on our island, um, golf and the whole nine yards. And she ends up in this little shack, um, just a little house, just very little house. Um, it's got a wood stove, which she doesn't know how to use. It doesn't have a shower. It just has a claw tub, which she falls in love with, of course. Um, but yeah, it's just in the middle of nowhere, and it's just this tiny little thing, and she doesn't know how she's going to cope. Um, and she keeps thinking nobody's going to hear her scream if she's in trouble. But of course, then the neighbors keep dropping in, and she realizes that she was lonelier in Montreal than she was here because people keep coming and asshole, you know, shows up. And, uh, just, uh, yeah. So just, you know, kind of, so no, it's just a, a composite of, but I do know, like I say, I know, I know 
I know Ethel's house, actually, and my friend lives there. I told her she wasn't <laughs> Ethel. Not be worried. <laughs> but um, well, it's just fun. It's just fun to know the area you're talking about. Oh, absolutely. So do you want to read a little more? Sure. Now, um, well, I can read you um, Ethel coming in. Um, that would see. be fun. Yeah. She went, uh, Kitty... Okay, Kitty goes back into the little house, made sure that the screen door was locked with a small hook to prevent Pip, her little dog, from venturing outside, but she seemed content to sit by it and drink in all the heavenly smells. When Kitty was fiddling with a few boxes in the main room, Pip began to bark. Oh dear, maybe a coyote was outside. Kitty picked up a broom she saw in the corner and approached the kitchen door. A scrawny elderly woman with sharp features was on the other side of the screen, looking leery of the dog. And Kitty was worried there'd be nobody here to hear her scream. People were crawling out of the woodwork. <laughs> yes, hello? Oh, good. You speak English. Being from Montreal, Matt, I thought maybe you were French. Um, does everyone here know where I'm from? Oh, yes, dear. You're big news. I brought you something. Kitty released the book. I released the hook and opened the door. I, don't worry about Pip. She won't hurt you. I'm Kitty. The lady came through and dumped her shopping bag on the table. Kitty? That's a funny name. Kitty. Oh, Kitty. Well, that makes more sense. I'm Ethel. I live in the first house on the road, and when I saw that there baby blue car go by, I knew it had to be city folk. No one around here would have that odd color. <laughs> oh, I see. Well, it's nice of you to drop. <laughs> well, it's nice of you to drop by. I'm just trying to unpack. What you doing in this neck of the woods anyway? Some kind of retreat, I hear? I'm, I'm sorry, but I don't know how that's relevant. Just curious, that's all. Look, I brought you something. She pointed at the bag, so Kitty had no choice but to open it. Inside were a half a dozen fluffy tea biscuits and a jar of delicious-looking marmalade. Then she realized that some of the marmalade was missing. Oh, well, thank you, Ethel. That's very kind. I appreciate it. Oh, no trouble just being the neighborly. Where's your husband? Well, he's not with me. Not with you? You came here alone? I'm not alone. I have the dog. That little hairball, that's not going to protect you if air happens by. A bear? I could happen. I saw one once, and that's why I don't go out in the yard. Fools who walk up and down this roadway are just asking for trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, dear. And that is another thing that's so (laughs) realistic. When when people who've never lived in the country come out to the country, they're afraid of all kinds of things. That it's it's very easy to to, – and I think sometimes country people – goad them into being even more afraid like Ethel kind with the bear which you know yeah was, was a very unlikely it's yeah it's nonsense very unlikely thing to happen yes. but yeah every sound you every know, bears in, in, <laughs> it's true it's true but so anyway that's just her fear anyway Ethel just doesn't like bears but bears you can only find in the Cape Breton Highlands they don't walk around our neighborhood mm. <laughs> although there was one once Really? Yeah, <laughs> One time. Okay. Wow. Yeah. It, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And now, do you actually have to be careful with small dogs being stolen by birds or coyotes or being attacked? Yes. Yeah. That, that yes, is we real, do. Um, yeah. Because there are, yeah, there's our coyotes, but also little dogs, especially little dogs, can be carried away by eagles. And we have a lot of eagles where we are. Wow. So you, know, you have to be, you have to watch it. 
when I lived out in the country, I, I had a dog that I was pretty, that went missing, that we were pretty sure it was the coyotes, that either he went mm. and ran with them, or that with the pack, there was a pack of wild dogs down by the river, we thought, and so he might have gotten in with them, mm. or he might have um, got, been attacked by the coyotes. And, you know, when you live in the country like that, the dogs have free run usually if they're big enough that you don't have to worry about them being taken away by um, mm. by uh, eagles. <laughs> but, but so like Wallace's dogs, they have pretty much yeah. free run of the place, <laughs> <You're> right? Not... <laughs> well, an eagle is not going to carry off a Newfoundland dog because right. they are about 200 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> not to worry. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, worries there on that score. But uh, yes, and I always like, I mean, most of my books, I always have animals in them. I think I love animals more than people. And I just adore, um, they just bring so much more to a story. And actually, my, the the novel that I wrote a couple of years ago, The Spoon Stealer, that one was listed for Canada Reads. That was a big deal um, here. They were all bestsellers, but this is a big one and uh, I was so thrilled because one of the characters is a dog who talks and I didn't know if readers would come along with me on that journey but they did and I I was so thrilled because so Vera the dog is really one of my favorite characters Vera and Emmeline are best friends uh, Emmeline is an older lady and she lives with Vera and they talk forth all the time and I love that relationship and I still miss them Oh, so of all the books you've written, do you have a favorite? I I used to say that I like this one or that one, but it, it's gotten to the point where I really love the one that I'm writing. Oh, uh, like well, the, that's good. <laughs> yes, yes, that is good. If I can say that, then I know I'm on the right path because it's, yeah, so I really think the one I've just written is the one I I love the best at this point. <laughs> so so is I do love I love recipe. Well, I love recipe. I mean, I love my books for different reasons, right? But but I do like this one that I've just written too. Now, um, recipe for a good life was just published in the U.S. in October. Have your all your books been yes. published in the U.S.? I don't know. I think this is my first foray into the United States. This is so exciting. Oh, wow. Um, never, you know, yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. So the thing is, once people read one of my books, they usually go back and read the backlist. They read them all. So this is very nice. <laughs> like it's If they like the Spoon Steel and they like my type of writing and they like my type of books, they'll like all of them because they're all exactly the same kind of just – I mean, the stories are completely different, but – you know the the, the rhythm, voice, the, the yeah, the, the, yeah, the voice is the same, yeah, 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 and it is. So. And uh, I'm sure, even if they haven't officially been published in the U.S., they're available to U.S. readers on Amazon or. Oh yes, yeah. Well, this is the first thing too because I am now on Amazon.com, where before I was only on Amazon.ca. Oh. Um, so yes, you can go to Amazon.com. All going to be there, or you go to my lesliecrew.com. All of them are there. All they've got all the synopsis of all the stories, and you can order them from there too. So, oh, you can order yeah, them. You're, you're all you're good. 
You can order them straight from your website. Yeah, you can order them right from my webpage. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. And I'm I'm yeah. looking at your webpage, LeslieCrew.com and and it's yeah. very well done. You know, every book. Well, thank you. Yeah. That's my daughter. I'll tell her. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. lovely. Well, she's a graphic designer. Well, that well, makes thank sense. You. Then. Yeah, thank you. Does she do any well, of your thank covers? Well, goodness for her. No, no, that's the publishing company. They have their own in-house, um, you know, that's a, a separate department. And they do the covers. Now, all the, my backlist now, they're all sort of look the same. They've lost their original color um, covers. But I don't want these latest ones. I, I love the covers, and I want to keep them the way they are. But because I have so many, they wanted to have the same kind of look. And all these librarians love that they have the look. They can put all the books together. Because when you've got 16, that means a lot. Um, but I do love this cover for Recipe for Good Life. I love the Spoonstein cover, and I love the Nosy Parker uh, cover. Now, the Nosy Parker takes place in Montreal in 1967, and the character is 12. I was 12 mm. in 1967 when we had Expo 67 happen that year. So I remember that year very clearly. And um, so, yeah, well, so when I say my my books are like diaries, that's, that's True. Now, True looking enough. at your website, there's also the Crew Brew. What's oh, uh... <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> That's kind of I don't know how they're going to do that for the states. I don't know, but they put it together. There's a little local tea company in Cape Breton Island, and because so many of my characters have tea sitting around a table, they thought that they would do up a special batch of crew brew and it's a it's loose tea um it's actually the taste is sort of like uh, i they asked me what kind of flavor i wanted and i said blueberry because that's what i call my girls my granddaughters little blueberries and so blueberry and lemon um it's really really good i'm surprised so it was just a promotion they sort of you know you buy so many books you get a package of this crew brew too oh <laughs> That's yeah. you. you have your own have tea. Have a cup of tea on me. <laughs> How wonderful! I have my tea. <laughs> I know it's, it's 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 foolish, but anyway, it's kind of fun. Yeah. Now, do you do you do a lot of interviews to promote your books? Yeah. You, and are you doing more for this U.S. Um, debut? Is this like more than oh, usual? Yes. Oh, yes. I've been... <laughs> Yes, I've been talking to radio stations all across your country, and I I never know where I am. <laughs> and it's, it's I, I had one fella. Um, he obviously maybe was from Louisiana or something. It's a gorgeous accent. And uh, then somebody else. I have to talk to somebody in Seattle and somebody in the Midwest. And my gosh, it's it's so exciting. It's so exciting to know that I'm reaching maybe new readers. And um, you know, because people in Canada know. Well, people in most. In the Maritimes, they sure know me. It's a sin because my husband has some medical issues, and he goes to the hospital for an appointment, and they say, who's your next of kin? And he says, Leslie Crew. And they say, what? Like, suddenly they don't care about his heart anymore. (laughs) What do you you mean? Leslie Crew, not the writer. Oh, my God. And then they're all excited, and they, yeah, they forget about him. So it's funny. It's funny. But And you're actually – When they they said all these – Sorry, go ahead. Well, when they set all these appoint these uh, radio things up, I, I she said, you know, nobody knows you. I said, right. 
it's kind of exciting. Like nobody knows me. So it's just whatever I'm saying to you is going to either turn people off or, or let them make them read the book. Well, I think it'll make them read the book. You're also doing some live events in the U.S. too. I see in Amherst and uh, today. Oh, yes. no, that. Uh, yes, I, that's not. Um, it's Amherst in in um, Nova Scotia. Oh, I'm doing. Okay. I'm doing okay. a, Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm doing a reading a reading tonight, and then I'm doing a reading tomorrow morning, and then I'm doing a book signing in Truro, and then I'll be back in Halifax for a couple of days, and then I have to drive home to Cape Breton. That'll be oh, it until okay. after Christmas. Okay. Yeah, Here, so I thought you were in Massachusetts. <laughs> I wish I was. I have relatives in Hingham, Massachusetts, and we and we love going down there. Yeah, so maybe someday I'll get there. Now you mentioned that you always, almost always, have animals in your books. Do you have pets yourself? Yes. <laughs> no. Well, we've always had pets: dogs, cats, the whole nine yards. We finally, finally, our 18-year-old cat died last month, Aww. and it and that was it. Like John and I sort of looked at each other and said, "I don't know if we can do this again. It's just so hard to lose them." And uh, but no doubt there'll be another stray come along, and because we do live in the country, and uh, you know that often happens. So we kept all her stuff in case another little one comes by. But it's, you know, you get to a point in your life and you get older, it's harder to, you know, you're traveling and uh, yes. and I do a lot of traveling with this. So I don't, I'm not really anxious. I just want to love everybody else's at this point. And I have a grand dog so I can, you know, hug her if I need some <laughs> love. <laughs> have you ever had yeah. a Newfoundland yourself? No, but my uncle did, and that was the name. So I call Argus and Pride were his dogs, and that, oh, so I put them in the book. Just for oh, him. how wonderful! Yeah, they were they were beautiful dogs. We had friends from come from Montreal when we were college students, and they came down and they tried to go on the beach. And one fellow was kind of nervous about swimming, and Pride, the big male Newfoundland dog, wouldn't let him go into the water because he knew that he was he was nervous. And any time he tried to go out, the dog would hurt him back in because that's what Newfoundland dogs do. They save you from the water. And it was just amazing to see. Oh, yeah. cool. Cool. So in yeah. I, I saw there was um, a quote from another author, Nicola Davison, who describes recipe for a good life is Notting Hill meets Kate Breton. If Julia Roberts was a best-selling <laughs> author and Hugh Grant a clandestine baker instead of a bookseller. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's kind of true. I have to say, I totally love Wallace. He is—he's uh, something else. And I, I could you know, see is, Hugh Grant. Oh, oh, well, Hugh Grant's a little old now, maybe to play Wallace, but uh... yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, who would you yeah, cast? It's—they're uh, wonderful characters. Who would you cast I as Wallace? So. Oh, Wallace! Oh my God! We well, see now. Hugh Grant is is fabulous. I love him, but he's not really Wallace because Wallace is huge. Wallace is a big, big guy, you know, like six, 300 pounds kind of thing. And he's very shy and he has a red, he's auburn hair. I don't, I'm trying to think of somebody who looks at a big, giant, redheaded Viking. Uh, how about Jason, Jason um, Momoa? He's... Oh, God, yes. Make him, <laughs> yes. Well, he'd be great in anything, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Just dye his hair red, and I'm, Just, I'm good to go. Absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he is from Iowa. 
believe it or not. Yeah, I didn't he's know from, that. He's from Des Moines, Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Lucky, lucky Iowa then. Yeah, lucky Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so you are. Um, do you have some books also ready to come out in Canada? Well, this one has just came out this summer, so okay. we're still sort of flogging this one. Okay. But the, but the next one will be coming out in June. In, okay. And then I have to write another one, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So I was wondering if you'd already started on the next one. <laughs> so when you're when well, you're in, you know, I'm editing it now. Oh, you are. Okay. You're or you're mm-hmm. editing the death the um, death and other inconveniences. Death one. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. So are you always? Yes. Either writing or editing? Do you take a break in between? You know what? Um, Yes, because like I say, I write for two months and then I don't write anything. Mm. I'm not one of these people that get up every, you know, five every morning and write a couple of hours before their day starts. I've never do that. I can write for two months and then not write anything for eight months. It's just, you know, it's only when I'm writing a story will I write. Wow. Um, and then do the editing process and stuff, but that's that's it. It's either all or nothing with me for everything. <laughs> so it's either so. <laughs> you're totally focused on it or you're off doing other things. That sounds like yeah. Well, kind you know of what I'm ideal. off doing. Well, I'm off walking. Where I live is so beautiful, and I walk, and that's where I re- that's where I think up my books and write my books in my head. And I think I only come down to the computer. And I spend the two months typing it out. So really those eight months doing nothing are usually, you know, I'm writing a book in my head. And then so that's kind of what I do or the way I go about it. That's why I can't remember a thing. I don't I don't answer people when they talk to me because I've got 400 characters in my head at one time. And that's how I do it. Oh, fascinating. So when you sit down to write, you already know the entire story. Actually, you know what? I don't have a clue. The only thing I have when I start is the title. I always have the title of the book first because that's my beacon. That's my little kind of nugget, my shining light that I can go back to as I, because when you write for days and days and days, you can go off course very easily. Um, So I have to keep remembering the title to bring me back to where I started. But it's the characters that tell me what's going to happen. I, I never I have a vague idea of what the story might be about, but I never know how it's going to end. I never know. Um, and sometimes the best characters come in halfway through a story. and I'd never thought of them. One one the, the, my book, Ken, I had three characters, Annie, David and Lila were telling the story. And then about 50 pages in the character Ewan came out from behind a tree and I knew that he had to be in the story and his voice had to be included. And thank goodness it was because he made the book so much better. So if I had had a draft, if I had had it all planned out, he never would have shown up and I don't think the book would have been as good. Now everybody has their own like recipe, recipe for good life, recipe for writing. My recipe for writing works for me, but it doesn't mean it would work for anybody else. You know, so you have to take everything I say with a grain of salt. You know? <laughs> well, it seems to work pretty darn well for you. Um, so, so yeah. the eight months when you're thinking about the book, it's just the characters; it's not the actual plot that you're that you're mulling over. I, sometimes it's the actual plot. Like, what do I? What do I want to write? Um, I went to a. Um, I was just at a 
I did a thing at this Chester Playhouse it was called. It was a conversation with Leslie Crew, and all these people showed up. And one of the women that were um, leading the people audience in, I looked at her name tag, and her last name was Petty Peace. <laughs> Petty Peace. And I, and I said, what? Where does that come? Petty Peace. And, of course, instantly it went off in my head. Uh, okay, there's going to be a character in a book called Petty Peace. Their last name, that has to be their last name. And I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet, but I'm always looking for names. <laughs> and like Gaynor, Gaynor Ledbetter. Gaynor was a, a writer, a, a reader that got in touch with me to say how much she loved my books. And I loved her name. And I thought, I'm going to put you in a book. And she said, oh, yes, please do. And so I did. So I met I, a woman. I'm just looking. I'm, or, I met a woman mm-hmm. named Gaynor from England a couple years ago. And I'd never heard that. Yeah, she was before. from England. I wonder if it's the same one. I had. May, oh my God! Wouldn't that be ironic? It would. Do you remember her last name? <laughs> oh gosh, no, I don't. Because people, oh no, I, I I hear from so many people, I have no idea yeah, who anybody yeah. is. But I remember, but I remembered her name. It's the same way with um. Or I'll put people's names in. I got a letter from someone. Oh my goodness, their ninety-five-year-old mother. Uh, the last book she read was Recipe for a Good Life, and they put, did, made up her eulogy, and that's what they put. That was the title they put, Recipe for a Good Life, and they, they sent it to me. Oh, my goodness. It was just – they, they, they read it out at the funeral, and everybody was crying, and and so I wrote them back you know, and said how honored I was, and um, they said her mother's name was Mabel. And I said, well, if I ever have a Mabel, and I said, you'll know it's for her. And uh, so that's what I do. I just pick up names like that. Oh. Well, I, we're out of time, but I want to thank you so much for being with us today, oh. Leslie. And um, oh, Thank you, Monica. It was lovely. I we, really enjoyed it. Really did. Thank you. We always end with a quote, and I found this from Simon Hoggart, who is a, a British journalist, I think, about, um, about Canada saying Canada, and it kind of remind mm. me because of something you said, Canada is not so much a country as a clothesline nearly 4,000 miles long. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. That's fabulous. Oh, my gosh. I love that. That's, you know what? That is. That's us. That's yep. Us. And somebody hanging out close saying, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, oh thank you so That's much. Wonderful. Thank you. And see you Thank all. Thank you, Monica. And see you all next week on Writers Voices. <laughs>